submit a question, something like this. Some of them are kind of loosely connected with, with this, but I, I wanted to involve as many questions as possible. Here are some of the questions that were submitted, just as examples. Somebody asked, what makes Christianity the true religion? That's the claim a lot, that Christianity is a true religion. What makes it that way? What happens when we die? Um, somebody asked, why did you choose the people you did to spread the word about you? Like, God, why did you choose certain people? Um, somebody else asked in a more personal version of this, how do I know that I'm forgiven and going to heaven? And so the view of Orthodox Christianity over the past 2,000 years is that Jesus is the way to salvation. That's the, that's the Orthodox view of that question. There are Bible verses that appear to, to clearly state that. There are others that they don't contradict that, but they, they bring some ambiguity. Like, okay, well, how does that work exactly for people who've never heard or people who have a distorted view of what that means? And so there, there's a lot of theological hair splitting around this question. Uh, for example, in John uh, 14, chapter 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That sounds pretty clear. And so that's a, that's a verse that gets quoted a lot as a simple, easy answer to this question. John 14, 6, boom, and then deal with it. That's just kind of the approach that, uh, that a lot of churches take. The Apostle Peter says in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, on the day of Pentecost, he says, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Sounds pretty clear. But once again, there is some ambiguity, and throughout Christian history, there have been people who have been asking questions about how that works. So one thing that's true now is that our world is getting smaller, isn't it? You know, before a couple of hundred years ago, there was no such thing as mass travel over a long distance. So larger ships made sailing safer, and you could haul larger numbers of people. And so even the past couple hundred years, the world has shrunk more than ever before. And in the last 125 years, air travel has, has made the world shrink even more. And now you can fly to the other side of the planet, you know, in, in the space of, you know, several hours and, and be exposed to a completely different culture. That, that wasn't possible before, you know, 100, 125 years ago. So our world is getting smaller. Last week we had a a couple here who were uh, family members and guests of some of our members here, Jeff and Donna, and they are pastors in Switzerland. They were born in the United States, but they've been in Switzerland for decades now, I think. And uh, Jeff's a retired pastor, and he and I had a good conversation back here for a few minutes, and he said the week before he came, so two weeks ago, he gave the sermon on Swiss national radio. It's like a huge honor for him to do that. And he and I talked about you know, what I was saying during the sermon and the approach of the well, and he said, you know, there's a lot in common. We have a lot in common. There, there, are, there are churches in Switzerland who would love, you know, what there are people in Christians in Switzerland who would love the well and would love what you're doing here. And it just struck me that they're on, you know, almost the other side of the planet. But there are people who are thinking similar things about religion, about spirituality, about America, and about where we are right now. There's a lot of similarity, even though we're on the other side of the planet. And so I'm like, man, I'd love to hear your sermon. Send me a link. And he's like, well, it's in French. I'm like, well, forget that then. It's not going to do me any good. And so he's, he's born an American, pastors in Switzerland, preaches in French. But yet our world is small because we're thinking a lot of the same thoughts. And then when I was in high school, there was this new thing called the information superhighway. Do you remember that phrase? Some of you. Or the World Wide web, if you will. And, and so we had no idea what that would do to shrink the planet. And so now we have these supercomputers in our pockets 
that we carry around that gives us instant access to information that no other generation of humans has had in the history of humanity. And that has certainly shrunk the world. You know, the interwebs can expose you to different religions, to different ideas, different concepts, millions of people's cat photos. And we, we are exposed to all kinds of, an, of ideas that generations before us had no way of being exposed to. So before all of this, you could be confident in your truth because you're, you and everybody around you agreed with your truth. That's not the case now. Of course, we live in a country that's a melting pot. And so, you know, now if a, if a Southern Baptist pastor says Muslims are going to hell, and he just flatly proclaims that, uh, a young American professional now doesn't think of a faceless, nameless mass of people on the other side of the globe. They think of their coworker in the next cubicle, who's a nice, decent person, and, and they know the family, and wait, so it's not like this fa faceless mass of people. You're saying like my, my nice, cool coworker is going to hell. We have a different reality because of our shrinking world than we've ever experienced before. And, and one of my best friends around here is a rabbi in Scottsdale, Rabbi Shmuley. I think he's the best human being I know. I, I don't think I know a better human being, actually, than Rabbi Shmuley. And so does that mean, okay, well, he obviously, he doesn't accept Jesus as the Messiah. Is he damned? Is my friend Rabbi Shmuley going to hell for all of eternity? But it seems like there are um, maybe a growing number of thoughtful people in the United States who want to follow Jesus, who are asking questions like this, and they want to be faithful to the gospel. They want to be Christians. They want to pass on the faith and Orthodox Christianity, what it means to follow Jesus but they're asking questions like that. An example of, uh, of somebody like that is in our congregation, Matt Lefevers, who is our, our music director here. And Matt, I know to be a lifelong learner. He's a reader. He's, uh, he's intellectually curious. He's got a good heart. And so he and I have had conversations about this before. I wanted to invite him up and just ask him some questions and let him share about his thoughts and how he's dealt with this. Matt, come on up. Let's give him a hand. You take this. Is this on? My three-year-old tried to follow me up here. <laughs> and he can. It's his world today. It's Luke's world. He can follow, follow you up if he wants. So um, you and I have had you know, some conversations over the years about things like this and other, other theological matters. And I wanted people to kind of hear from you, um, somebody who is a, is a thoughtful person, who's a learner. And um, you uh, shared some things with me earlier. And, I'm, and I said, you know, I just want to kind of throw you softball questions and let you give, you know, share what you had to share with me. So you mentioned uh, you've read C.S. Lewis, like a lot of Christian people have, I imagine, and you've gained some ideas about salvation and eternity from C.S. Lewis. Tell us about that. So I, uh, what you were saying about the larger world, um, confronting you with this in a personal way, I didn't grow up in a Christian, like, insular church community, so that's always been my experience, that as far back as I can remember, like, half the people that I loved would have been going to hell in the, that paradigm. Um, so I, I, I always remember being freaked out by this. And the first thing I ever remember reading that gave me a new idea about it was um, a lot of people have read the Narnia books, but not everybody reads all the Narnia books. The, uh, 
the seventh one, The Last Battle, which is like not one of the better ones, but um, there's a scene, and it's not even that important of a scene, but um, there's a minor character in that book who follows a different god called Tash, which is like the kingdom next to Narnia. And he meets Aslan, which is Jesus in the Narnia books, basically. And there's this moment where he meets him and he immediately sees like, oh my God, this is the real, you know, divinity or whatever. This is who I should have been following. And it says, so I fell at his feet and thought, surely this is the hour of death for the lion will know that I have served Tash all my days and not him. But he said, son, thou art welcome. I said, alas, Lord, I am no son of thine, but a servant of Tash. He answered, child, all the service thou hast done to Tash, I account as service done to me. Yet I've been seeking Tash all my days. Beloved, said the glorious one, unless thy desire had been for me, thou wouldst not have sought so long and so truly, for all find what they truly seek. And I was like eight or something reading that, and I just remember thinking that idea that you could think you were following one thing and then you could meet the source of all joy and hope and, and love and, and be like, whoops, I messed up. And the source of those things would be like, you were doing justice and hope and love. I count that as service done to me. So for a, a children's book, that, that planted an idea for me. And then he has another novel for adults called The Great Divorce, which is kind of a parable of the afterlife. And there's this gray city and you can take a, a bus trip from the gray city up to heaven, and there's a whole parable of people talking to people in heaven, and it turns out that if you stay, the gray city you were in was like purgatory or something, but if you can't bring yourself to stay, you go back there, and then it's basically hell. And so there's this line where a character says, everyone who wishes to come to heaven does, never fear. All that are in hell, choose it. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. To those who knock, it is opened. Which I think those are both novels. They're fiction. So I think even C.S. Lewis would say, like, I'm not necessarily claiming that's how I think that it works. But they were the first things I read that gave me some idea to hang that on, that there might be more to the picture. So he's a mid-20th century author. And and so you you could see there, and probably nobody else is thinking about deep theological questions at eight years old than Matt Lefevers. I mean, I feel comfortable affirming that. But you see there's some kind of latitude. There's, some, there's somebody thinking deeply about this in the Christian world, right? And then, of course, you had your son, and you shared how becoming a father has informed your view of God and our eternal fate and so on. And share, share about that. Yeah, that was just the fatherhood imagery that's in the Bible is, reads really differently when you are a parent. And it's one thing to say, like, you know, God is the father, and he does X thing with X people based on their choices or whatever. But as a dad, I'm looking at Luke here and I realize there's nothing he could do that would make me not love him. And there's definitely nothing he could do that would make me set him on fire. Um, I mean, if he, if he believed wrong ideas about me or he was making bad choices in life, I, I wouldn't love that. And I would want to guide him to better ones, but I would never hurt him even once, let alone forever. So is God a worse dad than I am, or how do I reconcile that? So just as a loving father, you're thinking about, and, and there's an old rabbinic maxim, if you know how to do this, how much more does God, right? How much more? Magnifying our own goodness, you know, how much more? 
And so that's caused you to think about. And then you shared some things about um, symbol sets and views of God. And, and so feel free. Sure. Yeah, I think I got that term from, uh, there's a quote from Nadia Bowles Weber, who's a Lutheran minister, and she says, I can't imagine that the God of the universe is limited to our ideas of God. I can't imagine that God doesn't reveal God's self in countless ways outside of the symbol system of Christianity. And I thought the symbol system of Christianity was an interesting way to refer to a religion. Um, but that's something that I, I really think about, and it's like, those are the symbols and the ideas and the language that makes sense for us to connect to, to whatever is divine. But the more that, going back to that large world thing or small world now, um, I think it's important to acknowledge that statistically speaking, I'm probably a Christian because I was born in America in the 20th century. And if, if I was born in this exact same spot, but in like the fifth century, or if I was born in the exact same year, but in Malaysia, I'd have a totally different language of ideas that I'd use to filter those things through when they happen to me. And so is, is, there, is it possible that, that an infinite creator God that's the source of everything that exists is so infinite and mysterious that different cultures might have applied different tools and languages to interacting with it and have come up with their own symbol systems for talking about it, but there might be some truth that that all leads back to. And then... Another idea I have, and I don't have like a theologian I can source this to, so if, if this is a bridge too far for someone, I, I'm, it's just me thinking out loud, but something I've thought a lot about is everyone who lived before the Old Testament was written, you know, everybody who lived before like six or 700 BC thought they knew everything that was going on and what the gods wanted and what was happening in the world, and in retrospect, Jews and Christians now would say they were way off base. And then everybody from then to Jesus's ministry would have said, now, now we know what's going on. We, we didn't used to, but now we have revelation and we know what's up. And then Jesus comes in and smashes all of that and invites all the Gentiles in. And there's this huge swath of people that were not part of it that are part of it now. But now we're like, now we know. And I'm just like, is how... How are we so sure there's not a third surprise coming or something, you know? Like, I, I think God can, I think it's hubris to believe we know everything that God might have planned for the future. So God might be bigger than our thoughts and our symbols. Yeah, awesome, man. Let's thank Matt. I, I wanted him to share because for some people, you know, depending on where you come from in life, um, you may feel like, well, you know, all religions are the same or that, you know, you might kind of be of, of that ilk. You might be of a, of, a, of a tradition where even considering a question like this is, it just feels sacrilegious. Like how could somebody talk about this? And I wanted you to get an idea of a thoughtful person who wants to follow Jesus and their thinking around this issue and, and playing right off of what Matt said, said, there has always been a diversity of thought in Christianity about who can be saved in the afterlife. Again, the belief in Orthodox Christianity is that yes, Jesus is the way to salvation. But there has always been a diversity of thought about how that works exactly. And so um, the New Testament statements about uh, salvation in Jesus are part of an interfamily argument between Jewish people who accepted Jesus as the Messiah and Jewish people who did not. 
Jesus is a Jew. He's born into the context of what we would call Israel and what was Palestine at that, at that point. And all of his early followers were people who were, who were Jews. And uh, as the decades went by, and as Matt said, Gentiles began uh, entering this new way of following Jesus. It was actually called the way. And there was a growing Gentile population of believers in Jesus in addition to the, the Jewish population who were following Jesus at that time. A rift started to take place. And it was simply this. For the Gentiles, do we have to become Jews in order to, to follow Jesus? Do we have to observe the commandments the way that my friend Rabbi Shmuley would in order to follow Jesus? And so this rift began to take place. And by the time we have the writing of the New Testament books, perhaps... 70, 80, 90 uh, AD, for the Gospels at least, that rift had become wide. And the argument was now intense. And some of the language that is used in Matthew and John, it's, it's, it's language that it reflects the intense argument that was taking place between Jewish believers in Jesus and Jewish people who are not believers in Jesus. So it's just important to note that context for, for a couple of reasons. Number one, what we're reading is not a discussion about, well, Muslims or, or people of no faith or Buddhists. And you could maybe you could apply that or you could extrapolate, but that's not the context of what we're reading. We're reading an inter-family argument between Jewish people about whether or not Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. The second, second reason that's really important is that we live on this side of the Holocaust, we know what centuries of anti-Semitism led to. And in, in the water, uh, in the cultural water, for hundreds of years before that, were statements, anti-Jewish statements, that were a part of this rift that we see in the New Testament. And we have seen uh, what, what somebody thought of as the final solution We've seen what that did in our world, and we don't want to be any part of that. We don't want to, be, uh, we don't want to have any part in hatred or anti-Semitism. Uh, I, I love my friend Rabbi Shmuley so much, you know, just personally as a friend, but I don't want to have any, any part in anti-Semitism at all. If you pay attention to Twitter over the past couple of weeks, you understand that what we're talking about today is actually a very timely topic because there are people who hate, is or they love Israel, but they hate Jews. If anybody understands what I'm talking about. And for political reasons, they will support Israel, but then they will disparage Jews here. And that's just interesting. But that comes out of a misunderstanding of the New Testament and not thoughtfully dealing with you know, what do Christians believe? about salvation and who can be included and who can't. So we're on this side of the Holocaust. A belief in the wideness of God's mercy has always existed within Christianity. And here's what I mean by that. And again, the orthodox Christian belief is that yes, Jesus is the way to salvation. But within the history of Christianity, there has been diverging opinions and one of those streams, one of those opinions, one of those viewpoints throughout the history of Christianity has been a viewpoint that, that accepted the wideness of God's mercy. The first time I ever heard a pastor use that phrase, the wideness of God's mercy, I was in a missions class 
at Mount Vernon Nazarene University in Mount Vernon, Ohio, which is, you know, find Columbus on a map and then like out in the woods somewhere. That's where Mount Vernon Nazarene University was. It was a great experience in, in a lot of ways. I love, you know, the friends I made there and, and it was enlightening as well because I came from a background where you would never, you would never even entertain this question. If somebody says, is Jesus the only way to say, of course he is, and you're wrong for even asking. Anybody come from that background? And I went to this college, this evangelical college, and there was a missions professor who had spent decades serving in another country, evangelizing people who were not believers in Jesus. So he's a guy who preached the gospel. He wanted to fulfill the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Jesus says, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. In the name of the Father, Holy Spirit, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And he wanted to obey that. And at the same time, in this missions class, this guy who had dedicated his life to preaching talked pretty openly about the wideness of God's mercy. And I found it kind of scary. And I also found it compelling. Because I realized, wait, there's this guy who, and I didn't expect this, there's this guy who was thinking a little more deeply about these, these issues and this question than a lot of the, you know, the Christian people in my life. The wideness of God's mercy means that a person could be saved through Jesus. And again, it's a Christian view. A, a person could be saved through Jesus without knowing the name of Jesus or without having you know, a proper theological understanding of Jesus. That doesn't really sound palatable in 21st century multicultural America. But within the history of Christianity, it's actually a pretty important uh, stream of thought. The wideness of God's mercy. And, and what I'm going to do now is just read a string of quotes. And I just want to demonstrate, if you are the kind of person who, who struggles with questions like this and you ask questions like it and you want to follow Jesus and you want to find yourself within Christianity you identify with that, but yet questions like this weigh heavy on your heart. I, I understand that you can feel alone, that you can feel like, man, you know, I, I, I just feel like there aren't many people that can even, I can even talk with about this, and, and who do I even, you know, the churches that I'm aware of, they're not really open to it, and, and we're a new small church, you know, there aren't 5,000 people here this morning like there are down the street. And that kind of, you know, can kind of lend to that. And, and you, can, you can feel alone. And my goal for the rest of the sermon is that you would realize you're not alone. If you ask questions like this and it's important to you and you find yourself, you know, out of compassion, wanting people to be included, but you're not sure how that works, I just want you to know you're not alone. So, for example, Justin Martyr. Justin Martyr, by the way, that's his last name. How do you think he got that last name? Justin Martyr was born about 100 AD, and he's considered to be the first apologist for the Christian faith. It, it, he wasn't a guy who said, I'm sorry, all the time. That's not, an apologist means somebody who's a defender of the faith, somebody who wants to help make sense of the faith in the world that he lives in. And so Justin Martyr, writing in, uh, uh, in what was the Roman Empire of that time, of course, uh, like uh, John chapter 1, the Gospel of John chapter 1, he viewed Jesus as the Logos. It's a foreign concept to us, but in Greek philosophy, the Logos meant something like the ordering principle of the universe. 
or reason itself or the, the, the force that came from the supreme God that helped create the world. That's just, that's just a concept that the Greeks had. And in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, John calls Jesus the Logos. So there's this larger thing that Greeks believe in that's bigger than any one religion. It's just this, this animating force in the universe, reason itself and logic and the thing that holds the world together. It's bigger than a religion. And the Gospel of John takes that Logos concept and says, that's Jesus. That's what we think of Jesus. That's who Jesus is to us. And then Justin Martyr picks up on that concept and, and views Jesus as the Logos and then helps translate that to Greek culture. And here's what that meant for him. He writes in uh, uh, the first apology, chapter 46. We have been taught that Christ is the firstborn of God, and we have suggested above that he is the Logos of whom every race of men and women were partakers. Every race. They who lived with the Logos are Christians, even though they have been thought atheists, as among the Greeks, Socrates and Heraclitus and people like them. Do you see what Justin just did there? Once again, this isn't, this isn't palatable necessarily to a 21st century American who, who would say, you know, all religions are the same and that kind of thing. But in the stream of Christianity, in the history of Christianity, what Justin Martyr is doing is he's saying, we believe that Jesus is bigger than just one set of symbols, than one religion, and that even Socrates and Plato and, and the Greek philosophers, whatever truth they, they found and wisdom that they taught, they actually obtained that from the Logos, which he views as Jesus. So Justin Martyr, in writing in 100 AD, would say, there are people who are wise, they're open, they're searching, they're looking for truth, they're committed to doing what they believe is right. And they don't bear the name Christian, but somehow they are included. For a lot of people, that's new. For a lot of Christians, that's new. But that's Justin Martyr writing in 100, you know, born in 180, writing in 150 AD. Another example, St. Augustine. Augustine lived from 354 to 430. He was a bishop uh, from northern Africa and is one of, if not the most influential theologian in the history of Christianity. You, just, you can't overstate Augustine's contribution. In On Baptism, chapter 20, he writes, but on the question whether we ought to prefer a Catholic, and by, he doesn't mean Roman Catholic, that kind of came later, but by Catholic he means universal Christian, Christian who just, they believe the same things the world over. But on the question whether we ought to prefer a Catholic of the most abandoned character, somebody who's just kind of a terrible person, but they're a Christian, to a heretic whose life, except that he is a heretic, men can find nothing to blame, I do not venture to give a hasty judgment. Do you see what he's asking? It's like reading Shakespeare in high school. Is it like, what does that, that verb connects to that? How? And so Augustine is saying, okay, if you've got, a, if you've got somebody who calls themselves a Christian and they're a terrible person, we don't know any of those people, of course, but if you did, imagine... And then you've got somebody who doesn't believe, but they're a great person. Somebody like, Augustine, what do you do with that? 
And here's his answer. I do not venture to give a hasty judgment. Wouldn't that be wise counsel for a lot of us in the Christian world today? I do not venture to give hasty judgment. He says, just as the light of the sun or even of a lamp is certainly not less brilliant when displayed to bad eyes than when it's seen by better ones, but it is the same in the case of both, although it either cheers or hurts them differently according to the difference of their powers. So he, he says, salvation's in Christ, and he's a, he's a Christian theologian, but he says we perceive whatever light that comes from God differently based on who we are and where we come from. And he says, I don't venture to give a hasty judgment. Fast forwarding about a thousand years, Ulrich Zwingli lived from 1484 to 1531, and he was the leader of the Protestant Reformation in Switzerland. This is, this is somebody who has influenced us in ways that we don't fully grasp. The Reformation influenced the people who influenced what America is. And so people like Zwingli, they're, they're, they're a part of our daily lives, even if, if we've never heard the name before. Zwingli writes in a short exposition of the faith. Then you may hope to see the whole company, an assemblage of all the saints, the wise, the faithful, brave, and good, who have lived since the world began. He's talking about heaven, salvation, so at some point in the future. Here you will see the two Adams, the redeemed and the redeemer. He's talking about Adam and the Genesis and Jesus is the second Adam. So it goes back to the New Testament. Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, you recognize them from the Bible, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, Moses, Joshua, Gideon, Samuel, Phineas, Elijah, and he goes on and on, David, Hezekiah, Josiah, John the Baptist, Peter, Paul. And then he says, in heaven someday, you'll see Hercules. Right on, right? <laughs> maybe, you know, maybe, but, it, but in, for, for, a, for a Protestant reformer, to list Bible characters, yeah, you'll see them in heaven. And he's like, but you'll also see Hercules and Theseus, Socrates, Aristides, and, and he starts naming, once again, these Greek philosophers, these people who were viewed as, as, uh, as people who were open to goodness, as people who searched for wisdom, as people who rose above just the mundane of their time. And it seemed like they were responding to something, to whatever light they had. And he says, Ulrich Zwingli, a contemporary of Martin Luther, says, yeah, you'll, you'll see them in heaven too. John Wesley was an Anglican priest and a spiritual leader in England who founded Methodism. He lived almost through the entire 18th century. He spent a little bit of time in Georgia as a missionary to the colony of Georgia. He lived through the American Revolution. Um, he was in England, but his Methodist preachers were here, and, and uh, Wesley was uh, a thoughtful spiritual leader who once again has influenced American Christianity beyond what we can even quantify. In a sermon uh, entitled On Faith, he writes regarding people who have never heard the gospel, they, you know, They've never even heard the name of Jesus. He writes, no more, therefore, will be expected of them than the living up to the light they had. So even in my background, occasionally some brave person would be like, well, what happens to people who never heard? They never even heard the name of Jesus. Are they like damned to hell for eternity? Well, Wesley says, no more will be expected of them 
than the living up to the light they had. But many of them, especially in the civilized nations, we have great reason to hope, although they lived among heathens, right? It's a different time. This, this is, is not language that, is, that fits in 21st century America. Um, yet we're quite of another spirit being taught by God, by his inward voice, the essentials of true religion. Somehow they were open to God and God speaks to people around the world and somehow they were, they were sensitive to this inward voice. Yea, so was that uh, Mahatmatan, Muslims, an Arabian who a century or two ago write, and he references this work, the story seems to be feigned, but it contains all the principles of pure religion and undefiled. So he references this Muslim work and says that somehow people are responsible for the light they have. And that somehow God is speaking to all people all over the world. And perhaps God, in, in a way that transcends symbols, in a way that expresses the, the parental love of God, God holds people responsible for how they respond to the light they have. This is Wesley writing in the 1700s. What about people who have heard the gospel? They've heard the name of Jesus, but they, they're still not really believers. You know, Wesley even, he even tackles that question in the sermon on, on living without God. He writes, perhaps they, there may be some well-meaning persons who carry this farther still, who aver that whatever change is wrought in men, whether in their hearts or lives, yet if they have not clear views of those capital doctrines, they don't have a clear theology, a theology that fits in with, with orthodox Christian theology. The fall of man, justification by faith, and the atonement made by the death of Christ and of his righteousness transferred to them. They can have no benefit from his death. I dare in no wise affirm this. Indeed, I do not believe it. I believe the merciful God regards the lives and tempers of men more than their ideas. I believe he respects the goodness of the heart rather than the clearness of the head. And that if the heart of a man be filled by the grace of God and the power of the Spirit, with the humble, gentle, patient love of God and humans, God will not cast him into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels because his ideas are not clear. Has anybody ever read this before? This would be new, I imagine, to a lot of Christians because his ideas are not clear or because his conceptions are confused. Without holiness, I own no man shall see the Lord, but I dare not add more clear ideas. So somebody might have a heart that is responsive to God in a way that God sees. And we're not the judge, God is. And that person may have different theology, they might, they might accept a different symbol set or no symbol set. But Wesley says, perhaps God is bigger. And that God holds people responsible for the life they had. Tolkien is credited, actually, he was a Roman Catholic. Tolkien is credited with uh, perhaps uh, influencing C.S. Lewis, that, that pagan myths foreshadowed Christ, that, that God is bigger somehow uh, than, than our sets. There are other views. Universalism is the belief that ultimately all people are saved and reconciled to God. It can also be called universal reconciliation. Um, the basis of it is that a loving God would ultimately restore all creation to a relationship with God. That would be outside of traditional, historic, orthodox Christianity, but yet it's a view that many people, I think, who love God and they love the Bible and they want to follow Jesus, they, they hold that view as they try to wrestle with these questions. Right? But uh, my hope is that if you're a person who 
ask questions like these, at least 13 of you are, then, and you feel alone in this world, you feel alone that Jesus is important to you, and at the same time, you feel like, man, it's hard to find a spiritual home out there, because there are a lot of church communities that just are not open to my questions, or I have family members who are not open to my questions. I just understand there are a lot of Christians in the media who are not open to my questions. You're not alone. Throughout Christian history, some of the the brightest lights that we've ever had who have influenced beyond just beyond religion but influence our lives and the good things that we have in our lives, some of the brightest lights in human history have asked the same questions that you ask and that you're not alone in that. I want to show you a video um, to wrap it up here. Uh, this video is from, I believe, 1997. And it's, it's hard to come by. I, I've shown a, a, an edit from this video before, but it wasn't, it wasn't the full video. I later found that out because it's really hard to find this video. And so some dude got a hold of the original VHS tape and, and put his, he played it on his TV and he put a, like a, his camera phone probably up next to the TV screen and took a video of the TV screen. And he put it on the internet because he, he wanted people to be able to see this video that is hard to find. And in this video I'm going to show you, it's about two, two and a half minutes long. Uh, Billy Graham is being interviewed by Robert Schuler. Robert Schuler, we actually have a family in our church that used to go to Robert Schuler's church in Orange County. The Crystal Cathedral was his church in Orange County in Garden Grove. And if you know who Robert Schuler is, he was on TV for decades. And um, of course, you, you probably know who Billy Graham is. Maybe not everybody does, but Billy Graham became really the, the most famous evangelist in history since Paul, probably, sometime in, in the, you know, the early 1950s in the United States. Traveled the world speaking. Um, the numbers that they kept uh, say that Billy Graham spoke face to face to more people than anybody in the history of the world, over 210 million people face-to-face as he traveled the world and, and had religious revivals, evangelistic meetings. He was an ordained Southern Baptist pastor. He was a conservative. He, he was the, the flag bearer for evangelical Christianity throughout you know, the latter half of, of the 20th century, and he just passed away last year. But he was interviewed by Robert Schuller uh, in the 90s, and... Um, Robert Schuller asked him, Billy, what do you think is the future of Christianity? And, and Billy answered him. And if you know who Billy Graham is, I, I just invite you to watch uh, this video. Let's check it out. Billy Graham with Robert Schuller from uh, 1997. Tell me, what do you think is the future of Christianity? Maybe. Tell me, what do you think is the future of Christianity? Well, Christianity and being a true believer, you know, I think there's the, the, the body of Christ, which comes from all the Christian groups around the world, or outside the Christian groups. I think everybody that that loves Christ or knows Christ, whether they're conscious of it or not, they're members of the body of Christ. And I don't think that we're going to see a great sweeping 
uh, revival that will turn the whole world to Christ at any time. I think James answered that, the Apostle James, in the first council in Jerusalem, when he said that God's purpose for this age is to call out a people for his name. And that's what God is doing today. He's calling people for, out of the, the world for his name, whether they come from the Muslim world or the Buddhist world or the Christian world or the non-believing world. Uh, they are members of the body of Christ because they've been called by God. They may not even know the name of Jesus, but uh, they know in their heart that they need something that they don't have, and they turn to the only light that they have, and I think that they are saved and that they're going to be with us in heaven. Uh, what I hear you saying is that it's possible for Jesus Christ to come into a human heart and soul and life even if they've been born in darkness and have never had an exposure to the Bible. Is that a correct interpretation of what you're saying? Yes, it is, because I believe that. I've met people uh, in various parts of the world in tribal situations uh, that they had never seen a Bible or heard about a Bible and never heard of Jesus, but they believed in their heart that there was a God and, that, uh, and they tried to live a life uh, that was quite apart from the surrounding community in which they lived. This is fantastic. I'm so thrilled to hear you say that. There is a wideness in God's mercy. There is. There definitely is. If you've never seen that clip and you're familiar with Billy Graham, you may now pick yourself up off the floor. It's jaw-dropping, isn't it? And this is somebody who you could make a legitimate claim is the most effective Christian evangelist since Paul. And... Uh, has traveled the world preaching and, and like the missionary at my college, you know, shared the gospel and wanted, wanted to bring people to Jesus and, and, and believe that, that we're called to do that. And, and yet at the same time, there is a thoughtfulness, there's, a, there's an openness that perhaps God is bigger than even our own systems. And so that video is really, really hard to find. Billy's gone, and uh, his son runs his organization now. And, and so you have to look really hard to find that video. But that's, that's somebody who has spent a lifetime traveling and meeting people from all over the world, meeting people of different faiths or no faith. And even though he's a Christian evangelist, is able to say something that I view in, 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 this, in Christian history and certainly in the times we live in now as a, a view that is magnanimous, a view that shows some openness. And so this verse, you know, that we read earlier as I close in John chapter 14, verse 6, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I just want to read the whole passage to you. This is the night that he's betrayed. We'll see if we can get our computer to work. It's the night Jesus is betrayed. He's going to be crucified the next day, and he's talking with his disciples. And if you feel alone in your spiritual journey, uh, I invite you to consider these words. Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I'm going, to go, uh, going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. 
you know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas, who's called the doubter, by the way, doubting Thomas, he says, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you'll know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And so that, that's, that's the view of, of Orthodox Christianity. But throughout, uh, throughout the centuries, there have been thoughtful people who, regardless of your questions or regardless of the symbol sets that you are familiar with, who would say, this is the real meaning of that passage. I'm going to show it to you. Here's the context of that passage. Here's the main point. Let's go. Let's look. If you're somebody who is open and you want to respond to whatever light you see and you want to live with goodness and mercy and you want to love your neighbor and you want to be the kind of person who makes the world better, you want to be a part of the real solution, not the problem, God has a room for you. And you're not alone. You are, maybe it feels like you're outnumbered, but as we look at Christian history, some of the best and brightest have been asking the very same questions you have, and you are certainly not alone. God has a room for you.